It's the time of year when we're all thinking about goals and priorities. Now is the time to plan your next trip. Whatever kind of travel fills you up, whether it's lounging on the beach, connecting with family and friends, or going on a foreign adventure, Expedia has the tools you need to plan a great trip. Download the Expedia app or visit Expedia.com to start planning. You do need to be a OneKey member to use price tracking. Signing up is easy and free. Expedia, made to travel. We've all been there. You have a question about your credit card, you call the number for help, and can't get a hold of anyone. If you only had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right, a real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. I'm Oprah Winfrey. Welcome to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. I believe that one of the most valuable gifts you can give yourself is time. Taking time to be more fully present. Your journey to become more inspired and connected to the deeper world around us starts right now. Timothy is the third of Eunice Kennedy and Sergeant Driver's five children. His older sister Maria has been a close friend of mine for over 30 years now. Growing up in the Kennedy family, his uncles were President Kennedy, Senators Bobby and Ted Kennedy. Tim felt the pressure to achieve. Yet of all of his mother's famous siblings, Tim believes his Aunt Rosemary was perhaps the most extraordinary. Born with an intellectual disability, Tim says Rosemary's presence in the family changed everything. In 1968, Eunice launched the first-ever Special Olympics at Chicago's Soldier Field. Tim watched his mother change how society views intellectual disabilities while leading the Special Olympics with grace and grit. In 1996, Tim carried on her legacy and became president. Tim's mission is to bring service empathy, and tenderness to individuals with disabilities around the world. In his recent memoir, Tim writes, we need to embrace our weaknesses, live without judgment, and redefine what it means to win in order to feel fully alive. So tell me how you came to, obviously, I've known your family for years. Maria and I became friends when we were both young reporters in Baltimore. I've been to events at your home. Right. I adored your parents. Thank you. Um, and you know, know a little bit about this big life that you lived. How is it that you come to write something as really profound as discovering what really matters, being fully alive? Well, I think in some ways, you know, I was programmed to search. I, I don't, I didn't choose it. It chose me, you know, from the time I can remember, I was always wondering. And I think now more recently, as I, as I lived more and more in the world of people with enormous vulnerabilities, mm -hmm. I kept thinking to myself, these people understand something about life, about authenticity, mm -hmm. um, about vulnerability that I keep trying to share with the world because it's making such a difference to me and I never can find the words. And uh, so the book just took me over. I had to write it. I had to try to capture this unconditional love, openness, trust that came to me from these folks who had such unlikely stories of brilliance and wisdom. Brene Brown was really one of the first teachers on Super Soul Sunday to talk about vulnerability, and she wrote a book called Daring Greatly. Yes. 
I want to know what specifically the Special Olympics athletes have taught you personally about the value of vulnerability. I think for me, it's all about leaving it all on the court. I mean, the athletes taught me, you know, the fun that comes from not being inhibited. Mm -hmm. You know, but most people, you know, think fun and, and soul are two different things. Fun, the soul uh, unleashed. Fun is really living directly from your soul. From your soul. Yeah, like yeah, going, yeah. Going into that space of freedom and going, wow. Mm -hmm. So they taught me that. They taught me humility and simplicity. Uh, they taught me trust. I mean, you know, uh, trusting the world with your dreams is scary for most yeah. of us. But these athletes taught me, even if you get disappointed, even if the world uh, doesn't come through for you, do it again. And one of the things that you really, that gave me an aha, that you were saying there's a little bit of Special Olympics in all of us. Yeah. There's a little bit of that, gee, I have my weaknesses, yeah. I have my vulnerabilities, but every one of us wants to be able to cross the finish line of whatever hurdle we're right. going through in our own lives yeah. with that same kind yeah. of joy to yeah. be, so same kind of, you know, love of what you're doing, that same kind of being in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. I think to be open about the things inside of you that hurt, that cause you pain, that you are ashamed of, the corrosive effect of holding in your pain, of trying to hide it, mm -hmm. I think is the worst suffering you yeah. can have. And, I, and, and you write so beautifully about that. Thank you. About your Aunt Rosemary. Yeah for whom the whole family held this shame. Tim's Aunt Rosemary was the third of Joseph and Rose Kennedy's nine children. After older brothers, Joe and Jack, Rosemary was born with intellectual disabilities, which the Kennedys kept a secret from the world for most of her lifetime. Rosemary's disability was not obvious to strangers. As a teenager, she attended dances and concerts, but by her early 20s, the family says she had become irritable and difficult to control. Without telling his wife or children, Joseph Kennedy scheduled a lobotomy for his oldest daughter. The lobotomy had devastating consequences, leaving Rosemary unable to care for herself. The family moved Rosemary to a Catholic institution in Wisconsin, where she lived until she died in 2005 at the age of 86. Do you remember how you first came to hear about her? Uh, you know, Rosemary was in our house by the time I was a child. You know, yeah. she would come regularly to visit. I can remember thinking to myself, she comes here unlike everybody else. Everybody else, we sort of have to prove ourselves. You know, everybody else was a senator or a TV star or a CEO or a Nobel Prize winner. Because to say the least, you grew up in a competitive family. Very competitive and, you know, earning all the time your stripes and trying harder and, you know, with a lot of humor. Yes. And a lot of joy and a lot of uh, tenderness, but still tough. Yeah. And then here's Rosemary. And she walked in the house and she didn't have to do anything. Everybody loved her. And you didn't have to do anything for her. And she'd sit with you and talk to you, play games, swim, walk. No earned. So love. she didn't have to do anything. I love that she didn't have to do anything to prove that she mattered. That's it. Or that she was worthy. And oh. that's to the extent any one of us learns that. Mm -hmm. I think you have the we have the key, the the first steps in feeling fully alive and feeling really that our souls are free. 
I love what you say, because this feels in many ways like a love letter to your Aunt Rosemary. Would you say that? It's a love letter to her. It's a thank you letter to her. It's a, you know, you're still with us mm. letter to her. And I love when you say, she's a woman who never gave a speech, or wrote a book, or held a job. And for a Kennedy, that's a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think she taught her brothers and sisters uh, this enormously powerful lesson, which is that, you know, there's some things you can earn in life, and then there's some things that are just given to you. Mm. And I think her p mother and father told, uh, told their brothers and sisters, take care of Rosemary, include Rosemary. And when they did that, through that long growing up period that they had Rosemary with them, mm -hmm. they, I think, discovered that, you know, when you get asked to give yourself to someone else, you get something wonderful in return. Was there a shame at first about her? I think her family struggled to figure out how does this child fit in. We want, to, we want our, our daughter to matter just like the other children, but the world doesn't necessarily understand or treat uh, or accept her. So, you know, you have these equal powers of shame and love. Mm -hmm. In the end, I think the love wins, but not before a lot of pain comes along. I, 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 I like when you wrote that the shame and vulnerability of intellectual disability was our family secret that even those of us within the family barely understood. Right. Why do you say you barely understood it? Well, because I think in some ways we thought of intellectual disability as a cause. And it was only when, at least for me, I spent more time in silence and reflecting that I started to see intellectual disability as a part of who we were, uh, as, as shame is a part of who we were, as vulnerability. I mean, we, we spend a lot of time as a family. Most of us in all of our family spend a lot of time proving that we're not vulnerable. Mm -hmm. We think that if we're not vulnerable, we'll be more valuable. Um, I came to understand that in our family, it was this vulnerability that Rosemary invited us into it was a whole source of value that I really had never really fully internalized to be open to be vulnerable. No, you know, only when after reading this book, Fully Alive, did I come to really understand how everything has its own divine reasoning mm. always. Always. And that in your family, this family of politicians and stars and competition constantly, that Rosemary, you call her, was the most radical, literally right. the most right. radical member of the family, and that she was there as an offering. Right. Her soul was an offering for the rest I of the family. If, if I were saying the hand of God was there, I think she saved us all to find, uh, to find ourselves conquered by love. I mean, this is a beautiful expression of, of St. Teresa, which I love in silence, we are conquered by love. In vulnerability, we are conquered by love. I think Rosemary was the person who invited us all it, to not just be conquered by power and influence and money and fame. Often called American royalty, the Kennedy family is one of the most influential in U.S. history. Born into a prestigious legacy that includes an American president, senators, war heroes, and public servants, Tim Shriver says that along with wealth and power also came enormous expectations. Tim says his family shared a restlessness to achieve, compete, and win 
in all areas of life. But from an early age, Tim says he felt a yearning for something more, a longing to find his place among the great Kennedy names, and a hunger to discover what really matters most. How big was that pressure in your family? I think my parents held ambition in, in good tension with love, but there was a lot of ambition and there was a lot of demands, and we thought if we did things that were big, we'd be more valuable. I can tell you, I remember being at the breakfast table at your house. I had to be like in my early 20s. And I remember like all the cereals lined up on the table and sitting there and your father asking everybody, what had they done? Right. What did they accomplish? Right. What did they? And I was like, oh my God, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. When, when the question gets around to me, what am I gonna, say? gonna say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. what am I gonna to say? Deliver. And yeah. I felt that yeah. from one day yeah. being in the house. Was that, was that always? Always. Like beginning in the morning, you write that beginning with it's a race a race to who could get to the breakfast table on time. Who can do the best, who can get the best grades, who can get on the best team, who can win the biggest trophy, who can get to sleep and get the most rest. <laughs> <laughs> there was a scoreboard in that house, uh, which was, you know, I mean, I don't want to make it sound too horrible because there, as I say, we had a lot, there was a lot of love in our family and my parents were enormously generous and But when you grow people. up with a scoreboard, do yeah. you always feel like you're having to measure up to whatever, I think to keep you the score? I think you miss out on one big thing, which is that you're already valuable. I think you can get, like religion does this to people too, you know, you start to think, well, God is the person I, whose love I need to earn. Yeah. And when God is just already there. God is already there. Waiting on you. I mean, that didn't, I, I, you know, it's so obvious, I suppose, but God is already there. You've already got it, you know? You, you don't have to earn God's love. That's the starting point, not the ending point. Mm -hmm. And uh, I missed that. I missed that lesson until a, lot, a couple of people just kept bringing me up short and inviting me into a deeper soul sense. Macy's Mother's Day gift guide has the perfect gift to make mom feel special. Shop by price, like 25 and under to 100 and under. Category, like fragrance, handbags, and more. Or gift lists, like for the mom who has everything. Gifts that are already wrapped and ready to be gifted and for grandma. Get top gifts like Dolce & Gabbana Devotion, Eau de Parfum, Coach Floral Printed Leather Cassie Crossbody Bag, and Le Creuset Shallot Dutch Oven. Shop at Macy's.com slash gift finder. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. You know, I thought it was interesting that you wrote in uh, Fully Alive, Discovering What Matters Most, mm -hmm. about the unspoken rule you learned as a child when it came to grief and loss. Uh, how did that shape, really, what you believe? First of all, tell me what the unspoken rule was. So the unspoken rule was, we don't talk about that. Move on. Move on. And uh, I think every child grows up, just not just my family, there's a lot of loss around. You, you, yeah. can't, you can't miss it. I mean, we think we hide it from our children, but mm -hmm. the children see it. Yeah. And if you don't have any tools to channel it. I mean, I think if you get grief wrong, you get a lot of things wrong in life. Ooh, 
that's a tweet, tweetable moment. If you get grief wrong, you get a lot of things wrong. You hide yeah. from a lot of pain. You hide from a lot of frustration. You hide, hide, hide. And in my family, of all the gifts we had, that wasn't one of them. We didn't really know how. I didn't feel like I learned how to face grief and transform it. Yeah. So a lot of it just kept getting bottled up. You know what's really stunning to me? Maria and I were having a overnight girls' slumber talk party. One time, slumber party <laughs> one time, and it was around um, November twenty second or something. Mm -hmm. I was saying, "Gee, this must be a really hard time for you. It must be a hard time for your family." And she said, and this maybe was like seven, eight, nine years ago. She said, well, "We never talk about that. We never yeah. talked about that. We never." never. Which is so shocking because. I still remember the day President Kennedy was shot in Miss Stagg's class, cl school being let out, walking home in the rain by myself, that whole sense of thing. And every November, you know, around that date, I would think about it, talk about it, talk about it to other people. Yeah. So it's shocking to me that it was, I was like, well. We can, my mom just said, we want to move the celebration of Jack's life to his birthday in May. And that was it. No talking about it. No talking, but on the other hand, you know, our house had hundreds of pictures, and most of the pictures yeah. are of people who weren't there. And, you know, there are pictures of her parents and her brothers, her sisters. Uh, so there was this, in a way, attempt to keep everybody alive, you know. They, Yes, but what you write about in the book is is that it wasn't just, you know, don't grieve about it. It's like because there are other people who are suffering. Yeah, get over it. Get over and, it. And, you know, everybody's in heaven and the children who are starving to death are much worse off than you. And get on to yourself. Move on. Hurry yeah. up. Get going now. Yeah. Uh, get back in the game. You know, yeah. get back in the game. This is the way we did it. Uh, there's some strength in that. I don't want to completely say that there's no value in that. But I think we have to be honest. And good religion, good spirituality is honest about pain. But I am telling you what you just said, you know, the tweetable moment, if you don't deal with the grief, it comes out in every right. other area. If you, if you don't transform it, you will transmit it. Yeah. And uh, I think learning how to express grief, to move through it, to internalize both the pain and the healing, make it a, a real process of growth and change. I think if you don't get that right, you, you don't get the big question in life right, which is, what, why am I here and how, what, what's going to happen? That's right. That's right. So I know you've been a seeker. I didn't yeah. think of you as a seeker, but you've been a seeker for quite some time. Right. What did you think of me as? I don't know what I thought of you as. Maria's like, little brother. <laughs> Maria's little brother. Yeah. He's doing something, you know. <laughs> oh, it's so cute. Right. Yeah. No, yeah. no, I, no, I well, think of no, you as no, a grown-up who's no, running Special Olympics. Yeah, but. yeah, no, I know. Well, the thing is, see, when you think of something like Special Olympics, people tend to think of it as that's sweet. You know, that's nice. Oh, isn't that good? That's yeah. so good. And there's yeah, the little kids have a nice time, and everybody smiles and pinch their cheeks and take their pictures. And, but it's not. It's a revolutionary movement. It's a movement of the spirit that is kind of an unbridled challenge to the world. You know, if you look at a child who's 12 years old, with Down syndrome and believe, really believe in your heart that that child is as beautiful as any human being on earth, you gotta change everything. Yeah. So now you are running Special Olympics. You are it. I'm, run, I'm being run by it. You're it's a great, huge, wonderful global movement being run by the most caring, compassionate, loving human beings on the planet. Millions of them all over the world. And tell me this, you know, I talk a lot about honoring your calling. Mm. When did you know that this is what you were called to do and not just something your mother would want you to yeah. do. Yeah. 
Well, I think when I, uh, when I probably, when I was 16 years old, I ran a Special Olympics event in high school, which I did because my mother told me I should. Yeah. And uh, I didn't want to do this. You know, I felt like I'd lose myself if I was in a family business. And to some extent, you know, that was a risk. Mm -hmm. But I came back to Special Olympics when I was a little older, um, a little stronger, a little more centered, a little more present to who I was. And knew what you wanted. And I knew what I wanted. And I wanted to make Special Olympics into a school of the heart. And I wanted to share that story because I felt like it had given that to me. It had given me back my heart. What is it about Special Olympians? Why is it that going into that space where some people makes them so uncomfortable? Well, I think we're all afraid. Think of who these people are. You know, they're not smart by traditional definitions. They're not rich by traditional definitions. They're not pretty mm -hmm. by traditional definitions. They're not successful. They sometimes look sick by traditional definitions. Uh, they're all the things we don't want, we're afraid of. That, we're, that we fear. We fear. Nobody wakes up in the morning saying, I wish that for anybody. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people go, well, I'm sorry that happened to you. You know, one mother told me she had three sons. One works, two work at big investment banks, and the other has a severe intellectual disability. And she says, every time people ask me about my sons, I tell them about my oldest, who's in New York. I tell them about the second one, who's in Chicago. And then I tell them about Christoph, who's at home, who I have to get out of bed every morning. And they always say to me, I'm sorry. And she said to me, Tim, your life's work is to tell them to stop saying that mm. about my son. She said, that boy is the light of my life. Mm. And everyone thinks that I should be afraid, that I should be sorry, that I have this boy. Mm -hmm. And he is magic. Mm -hmm. So we're afraid of all that. You know, mm -hmm. we're just, you know, we don't know what to say. If, if, you, if you have a baby, you know, what's the first question you ask a doctor? Is the baby okay? Is the baby mm -hmm. okay? Sometimes the doctor says, no, baby's not okay. And your world goes crashing in, you know, mm -hmm. like, uh, what is this child? This child is not healthy. This child is not going to be what everybody thinks he should be. Normal. 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 The tyranny of that word, mm -hmm. you know, it's just like it's a cancer in the culture. Yeah. Normal. Mm -hmm. Are you normal? Are you fitting in? Mm -hmm. Are you like everyone else? Mm -hmm. My God. It's terrifying. Mm -hmm. And yet we all feel that. So we come to these games expecting to be sad. We come to them expecting to feel pity. We say things like, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm -hmm. People say that well-intentioned to me all the yep, time. Yep, 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 yep. Hold on a second. Tim's making me cry. <laughs> go ahead. Uh, what was I saying? So people come and they're, they're, they, they say, there but for the grace of God go I. Mm -hmm. And I always want to say to them, uh, you know, that, that pity, that fear, that that embodies that I'm healthy and they're not. Um, I think there's a, there's a strength in vulnerability that only vulnerability knows. You know, I think in some ways the whole Special Olympics gamble is, is there a power in vulnerability and trust? And I think the answer of our athletes is there is only power in vulnerability and trust. The other power is superficial. Mm -hmm. It locks people up. It puts people behind bars, mm -hmm. social, cultural, political, mm -hmm. interpersonal. There is only power. You know, I grew up, everybody's in a spotlight. That's where we all wanted to get to. You know, that's where you'd be successful. And what I saw was sometimes, you know, when the lights are the brightest, people feel the most invisible. 
I think sometimes where you think you want to go is not the place where you will find your most heartfelt, most meaningful, most purposeful life. I think sometimes it's in the places you think. I mean, I looked around thinking I wanted to be like all those people in lights, and I found myself happiest in places nobody wanted to be. Okay. okay. You know, one of the most <laughs> amazing stories that you tell in the book, and it speaks to the heart of what it means to be a special Olympian and what we can all learn, is that game in 1968. Mm. Can, and you describe that. Can you talk about that? So down on the field in 1968, uh, at the first ever Special Olympics, when people with intellectual disabilities are still living in institutions in yeah. huge numbers. In fact, the institutions are still growing in 1968. Can we just have a shout out to yes. Ms. Eunice Shriver at this we can. moment? Because, yes. because in that God. moment, in that moment, when institutions are growing, when the federal government, state governments, local governments are doing nothing, when parents are struggling with the most impressive kind of shame, the shame you cannot reveal. Yeah. She says, let's create an event and call it Olympic. So you have the most forgotten, the most humble, the most stigmatized people on the planet. And she says, let's put it in you soldier field. Yeah. And so in that moment, she, together with these incredible volunteers, and they walk yeah. on that field and they say, let's run our races. And one of the races, which to this day, no one knows quite who ran it. It's a one time around the track, six athletes and starting gun goes and the volunteers are on the sidelines cheering and the athlete, uh, they come around the back stretch and the athlete that's leading the race stumbles and falls and tumbles to the ground. And the athlete who's in second proceeds a pace or two and then stops. And the other four athletes continue to the finish line, but the athlete who stops and turns around in the middle of his moment says instead, my fallen friend is the priority right now, is what matters most. And they get up and they cross the finish line together. He goes back and yeah. picks up his fallen friend and together they, they walk cross in the line. as the And everybody's the last. cheering and they come in last. And they come in last. And they come in last or... Do they come in first? Yeah. <laughs> I like when you say, who really won yeah, that who race? who won that race? Who won that race that day? That's, yeah. I mean, I think that's a lesson for all of us. We sit at our home and we wonder, what, what do I do to come in first? And I think this, this, this athlete told us. I love what your mom wrote just before she was going to that game. Let me win. This is, it became the oath for the yes. Special Olympics. Let me win, but if I cannot win, let me be brave in the attempt. How have those words actually become a guiding force in your own life. So if you just, if you closed your eyes, which mm -hmm. I could do, and say, just the second half, let me be brave. Mm. What do I need to trust the world? I, I, I think bravery is like, it's the source, it's the presence within you of a strength you don't know you have. Mm -hmm. Let me be brave. I, I feel like somehow my mother knew that the secret of living fully alive, the secret of the soul, was to try to win. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, to be brave. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu.
Are you ready to unlock your inner greatness? If so, make sure to listen to my podcast, The School of Greatness, hosted by me, Lewis Howes. Join me as I sit down with world-class performers, entrepreneurs, and thought leaders to uncover their secrets to success with new episodes every single week. Whether you're striving for personal growth, business mastery, or simply seeking inspiration, The School of Greatness has something for you. And you can find it on SiriusXM, Pandora, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe and follow to the show so you never miss an episode and start your journey to greatness today. And and you also write that equally as important as bravery or, or courage is this quality of grit. Yes. Is this quality of having yeah. grit. We want to teach grit to children. We want to have grit ourselves. One of the things we've learned, I mean, the scholars teach us is that grit comes from being undeterred. People with grit just focus, you know, they know where they want to go and they stay at it. Yeah. But everybody, everybody fails. Yes. Right? We all fail. And then the question Why is- Why don't they teach us that in school? Uh, everybody just teaches- We need lessons of the heart, right? We need to tell children that this is an important part of life. Yeah. We need to remind children that when you lose, that, you have a chance to win the next time. You find a different part of yourself. Yeah. But we need to know that for ourselves. I mean, I yeah. see our culture in particular is so driven to win, 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 so that when you don't win or when you are third place, right. when you do fail, when you do fall down, people feel a sense of uh, despair about right. it right. and feel like they can't go on or right. feel like that that in some way defines their right, value. Right. Defines them. Yeah. And then you become not just embarrassed about what you didn't do, but ashamed of who you are. But a lot of us wake up in the morning thinking, I'm not really doing what I want to do with my life. Yeah. And I'm not really who I want to be. And I, there's something more to life than what I'm getting. And the truth is, if you're not doing what you want to do or being who you want to be, then you're not fully alive. You're not fully alive. In what way did writing this book, Fully Alive, discovering what matters, feel like a spiritual journey for you? Uh, to try to put words on what is wordless is hard, but it's a good exercise, it's a good attempt because it forces you to, try. it forced me. I kept diving into the journey and I kept finding stories in my own memory, in my own soul. I remembered the story of Loretta Claiborne telling me, you know, you don't have to be intimidated. Oh, tell right. us that story. So I'm racing around the office and the governor is gonna come into my office. And we were working hard to prepare for big games in, in, in New Haven, 6,000 people were coming and the governor was gonna come inspect everything. And I was tense and tight and screaming and barking and clean this up and move this around. And Loretta Claiborne, person with an intellectual challenge, child of the housing projects. And she's just sitting there helping out in the mail room and she watches me go by and she says, you know, Tim, the governor puts his pants on in the morning the same as you. And my first reaction was, you know, I know that. And then I just had that one gift of a pause. And I thought to myself, you know, she's trying to remind me that we're all, this, we're all in this together. You know, just relax. You know, when I read that, I found that so striking because, my goodness, governors, you're raised in houses with presidents and senators and... Yeah, but yeah, we I... were intimidated by all that. We wanted to be like, we wanted to impress, I wanted to impress him. Uh-huh. She was saying, don't worry about don't it. Don't worry about that. Yeah, relax. He's I'm, coming to our world. This is, your, the, 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 you know, she had the audacity to say, you know, you need to come to my world. And I'm thinking to myself, no, Loretta, we're trying to tell these people that we can get into their world, you know, that we belong in their world. And she's like, no, 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 we're not. Their world is all messed up. Their world's about competition and greed and avarice, and they're all unsettled and stressed out. 
they should come to our world. Everybody counts. Everybody belongs. Wow. I think she's, you know, she's a genius uh, of the soul. Yeah. What is the key to being fully alive? You talk I a lot think, about our weaknesses I and our think, pain. I and... think it's, I mean, the practice of fully alive is silence and service, I mm -hmm, think. Mm -hmm. The key, I think, is recognizing that you are more beautiful than you dare imagine. Mm -hmm and that you have to be afraid of nothing in sharing yourself with the world. I think so much of our lives are centered in places where we don't feel fully alive because we're afraid. I think uh, to be unafraid of the judgment of others is the greatest freedom you can have. And I think all great uh, innovators, all great souls are people who were not afraid. They found, if you will, God's strength. They found trust and they became unafraid. Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like I went into this experience thinking I would help the world, found myself quite insignificant, something of a failure, and struggling to figure out where I mattered. You wanted to do what made you feel alive. Fully alive, yeah, Fully alive. And, I couldn't, and I couldn't have articulated it, but intuitively I followed it, which is dangerous. You know, I can't say that's an easy recommendation to make, just follow your gut, although it's a good one. But sometimes your gut gets you, you know, you, it's hard. You know, you lose your job, you lose your income, you lose, you know, it can be difficult, but, you know. But your gut you is don't always follow your guiding heart, you. It's, it's always going to take you to the right place yeah, it eventually. Is. It your may, gut's guiding may you to God. God. It is, it is. Tweetable but God, moment. God's guiding you to God. Did I say that? Oh, she said that. <laughs> <laughs> See? <laughs> it's tweet competition. Tweet competition. How many she have I'm not competing. <laughs> Can't help it. I admit it anyway. <laughs> your gut's always leading you to God. Yes, it's true. Let's talk about your personal soul practice. What is it? Uh, you know, I try to, to meditate at least once a day. Uh, I, I am a practicing Catholic. I go to Mass every day that I can because for me, the sacramental presence, the idea of God within me is like something I just need to practice over and over mm -hmm. again, but God and I- Can never get enough of it. I can't get enough of it. I just <laughs> love it. I'm like one of the kids in the candy shop in church. I mean, I know it's weird. I know I sound like a, like a goofball, but I love it. What's your definition of God? My definition of God expanded when I saw into the eyes of another person's soul and felt like I was in the presence of God where I wasn't on my knees, when I wasn't saying prayers, when I was looking at another person, all of a sudden I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm looking at God. This is like a, I'm in the presence of the master, the creator, the energy of the universe. Where do you feel most at home or at peace? I have a little chapel in my house, which is gorgeous. You built a chapel. In my, well, I didn't build it. I just took a room and turned it into a chapel. Yeah. So it's yeah. like your prayer room. Yeah. Your, yeah. Your oh, no, it's a chapel. It's got it's an chapel. altar in it. Oh, it's, it's a chapel. Statues okay. and kneelers and all kind of crazy things. Candles. Uh, yeah, no, I have a chapel. Um, you have a chapel in I your house? I have a chapel. Yeah. It's fabulous. I recommend it. It's oh, yeah. great. Yeah. I think people's homes need to be places of prayer. I mean, you know, to be in prayer is to be open to the world, for me. So what's the lesson that's taken you the longest to learn? Uh, I think it's the same lesson, that I matter regardless of what I do. 
regardless of how many tweetable moments you No matter got on how the many show. tweetable moments, yeah. if this show is a bomb, if you walk <laughs> off the set and go over there and go, wow, that was a loser, and <laughs> call Marie and say, yeah, I like him, but the show sucked. <laughs> But you know I'm it didn't. Okay. Yeah, you know no, but I'm okay. I mean, I, I, that's a hard lesson for me to learn. I still want to be good on the show. I still mm -hmm. want to be good in life. I still want to write a book mm -hmm. that people like. You know, I still want to be liked. That's hard for me to trust that I don't have to do that. So why do you think we're all here? What do you think the reason for this human experience? I think we were here, uh, we're put here to learn to love unconditionally the, every fiber and sinew in our bodies and in the universe. I think we're here for the glory of the idea that we are united. You, you know, I think we think we're all divided. Like I think, you know, like you yeah. sit here thinking you're not the same as me. Yeah. And I think I'm not the same as you. No, like we're separate. Yeah. And it's a lie. It's a lie. We're not separate. And as soon as we get close to that, as soon as we trust that, whew, that's why we're here. That's why we're here. So what do you think happens when we die then? I think we rise up into this gigantic, glorious sense of life where, we're un, where we can see clearly. I think eternal life is as obvious and present to me as these trees. I have no doubt that my mother and father are right around here and all my friends and cousins and uh, children who I've put into the ground. And I think they're all right here just bursting with the life energy. And I think they're inviting me to say, relax, all will be well, all is well. That all will, will be, be well. well. Thank you, Timothy Shriver. Thank you, Oprah. Thank you, perfect, perfect. Best I can do. That's really good. <laughs> Thanks. Hey, you did your best. I did my best, did I did my best. best. I did that was best. good. I'm Oprah Winfrey, and you've been listening to Super Soul Conversations, the podcast. You can follow Super Soul on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this podcast. Join me next week for another Super Soul Conversation. Thank you for listening.